Hello and welcome to the Grace Point Henderson podcast. My name is Parker and I serve as the lead pastor at Grace Point Church in Henderson, Kentucky. This is a continuation of our series through the book of 1 Peter, Living Hope, in an exposition from chapter number 2, verses 18 through 20. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is to God. Uh, we can give Caesar our money, but we give God ultimately our lives. And this is the Lord's will, that the Lord appoints both our spot in space and he appoints uh, those in authority over us. And then last week we kind of hinged on this. We said to live because we are free or to submit because we're free. Submission is ultimately for the Lord's sake and because you belong to him. You've been totally freed. You've been totally pardoned uh, for Christ. You belong to him and you are his bondservant to the Lord. And so out of obligation from that reality, because we are free, we're free to honor and we're free to love. We saw these imperatives and we're coming into verse 17 now. Uh, to honor everyone. It's not just about the emperor, it's about everyone. To love the brotherhood, it's not just about the world, it's about loving those within the church. Uh, ultimately, that we fear the Lord, we worship God and Him alone, and we can certainly honor the emperor. And how, how do we do that? It's by submitting uh, to this authority that he has. And so, going to continue in verses 18 through 20 this morning. I'm going to read them, pray, and then we'll bring some implication and application uh, this morning. But this is First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we look at this text that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I pray that we would see Christ and know that Peter is pointing us to Jesus even now and in this text, certainly. God, I pray that he would go before us, make a way. God, help us by your spirit. God, open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Help us to receive your word, to believe it, and to apply it in our lives. And we'll thank you for it in advance. God, speak to us now. We're listening. Amen. Coming into a text just like a couple of weeks ago, I think you remember me saying this, we can be tempted uh, to insert or impose Western ideas and, and subjects uh, and impose those things and our understanding about them culturally in our society and, 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 and impose that onto the text. We may be tempted to do that when we look at something like servants and masters or something like as injustice. 
But Peter is aiming, moreover, he's, he's aiming at submitting to authority. He's aiming at submitting and honoring those that are in authority over us. And more than Peter is concerned about those things, he's concerned about our response to those things. He's concerned about the way in which we will respond to those in authority over us, to those that are maybe coming against us, and maybe even those who are doing injustice to us. He is not so much concerned about unearthing uh, the existence of society or these forces that are within society, nor is Peter condoning those things. He's not making approval of them by mentioning them. Merely, he is seeing them as a reality in the world in which he lives. He sees them as truths. He's not condoning them. He's not approving of them. But he is concerned about how Christians will respond to those things when they are met with those difficulties and adversities. Slavery in Peter's day, or this idea of being servants, it would have been, the idea would have been a household servant. And it wasn't racially motivated as maybe we have seen in Western society. You could become a slave in, in many different ways. You could be captured uh, by war. You could be kidnapped. You could be born into slavery, economic hardships, and you found yourself indebted to someone. You could become a slave in order to make ends meet. It was a means of survival for some people. But nonetheless, many and most slaves in this day, these servants, they lived really miserable lives. They were mining fields, they were mining the mines. It was a dirty job, it was just, it was kind of, the, nobody else wanted to do it, so it was these servants that would take those things, but they're not all that could be servants. Doctors could be servants. Teachers could be servants as well. Managers of households could be servants or slaves, and even musicians could be servants or slaves. And so, again, nonetheless, the similarities that we see is that Slaves were in control, they were controlled by their master. They had no independence or existence apart from them. But slavery wasn't more humane or less humane in the Greco-Roman world. Slaves could even purchase their freedom with the help of their masters, though none would aspire typically to do that. So what is Peter getting at here? Again, Peter is speaking about a reality that he knows to be true in the world in which he lives in. He's not condoning those things. He's not approving of those things by speaking of them, but merely saying these things exist within society. Peter isn't trying to overhaul the societal structures either. He's not trying to transform the culture in speaking of these things. He is, that would have been very daunting and really futile for a little church in the Roman Empire to even try to do that. But Peter is concerned with a Christian response. I say that for the third time now, he is concerned with a Christian response to these things. In the same way that he's concerned about a Christian response to authority as well. Christians ultimately have a response to the situations that they are faced with, whether it be persecution, oppression, mistreatment. And Peter's aim in all of these things is that it would be one that is fitting to Christ. Notice what Peter has been doing. He's really been escalating the difficulty of submission, if you will. Submit. Okay. Well, submit to the emperor. Okay. Submit to the governor. Submit even if they aren't good. 
submit because it's ultimately to the Lord. And now he says, submit, be subject, submit, even when people do injustice to you. Submission becomes increasingly difficult, and Peter is doing this intentionally. He's meaning to lead us somewhere, or should I say he's meaning to lead us to someone. Because when the posture comes within us, this pride that comes up within us, it says, if something isn't right, well, they can't do that. This isn't right. I need to defend. I need to rebel. I need to fight against. I need to take a stand. Peter says your answer is your, your response should be to do that which is good. You fear the Lord ultimately, not man, but you do what is good. You respond well, Christian, even in the midst of injustice. And to much of our surprise, Peter says, even in instances of injustice. And our glimpse is, in life is often narrow-focused. And we're not able to see the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. And so I want us to remind us this morning of three truths or three looks that we can see when we're tempted in these difficult days of submitting to authorities and submitting to those that are over us. And even in cases when we feel like it just isn't right. What should our response be? Peter would aim to say your response should be that which is consistent with doing good. You seek and aim to do good. And you see something there that's more than what may meet your physical eye. You want to know some truths, and there's three truths I want to point us to this morning. The first one is this, you need to know what you see. You need to know what you see or what I see and see God's aim in it. Because when difficulty happens, when things just isn't right or isn't fair, our response and longing of our heart is to see a sense of right to be put in the place. That's not right, we say. And we focus on making things right, but Peter's point is that don't, be so concerned about making things right, but in doing right. Do the right thing. Do what is right. Do what is fitting. He said this in several different ways in making this point. He says, you follow the Lord. It is for the Lord's sake, in verse 13. He says, you do what is right and good, verse 15. He says, you honor, love, and obey the Lord, verse 17. You belong to Him, so live knowing that you belong to Him and Him alone. And then he says, servants, be subject to your masters. The same word that he uses in verse 13, that submit, be subject, he uses that same word again in verse 18. Submit to them with all respect. Before he said it's for the Lord's sake, it's for the Lord's will. Live as servants of God, but now do it with all respect to those that are in authority over you. He says there are two types of masters. There's those who are good and gentle, but also notice the escalation and the subject of tension, those who are also unjust. And in that line, Peter has just shifted his line of thinking, and he is pointing us to the person of Christ. I want to show us that 
as we've worked through this time together. But he continues to build. Notice what he says in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. This is gracious and inserts a dynamic at play. How do you suffer well? Christian, how do you suffer while only doing what is good? How is suffering even a gracious thing? What is Peter aiming at here? Why would he say such a thing? And Peter, as he's already indicated, we are submitting to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, and for the Lord's will. And he says in verse 19, this brings about our awareness of God. That's what he says. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. The term that he used there is in, is in the Greek is a genitive form of the word theos, the Greek word for God. He uses the genitive form, and the genitive form is that one of possession. I have something. This is property belonging to, it is of Parker. It is of this. In other words, it belongs to me. I have it. I, it's, I claim it. And he uses a genitive form of the word theos, the word God, and he says, there's something that you have of the Lord. It is of God. You possess it. There's an awareness and a reality, as the author of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 10 or 2 Corinthians 5.11, that in the midst of suffering, you possess an awareness of the Lord for your purposes and circumstances. What's Peter's point? It's the same point that he's made a couple of times and we pointed to last week, that there will come a time, Christian, that you can no longer submit to the earthly institutions because mindful of God, because you have this possession and mindful and knowledge of the Lord, you can no longer submit. And because you are mindful of God, in your circumstances, you do what is good and you do what is following of the Lord's will. And that God, and you don't go against those in authority, but you return, you know that God will bring about unjust punishment to them if they are treating you unjustly. But it's looking to the Lord in those instances. And there comes a point where we cannot ultimately bow the knee because of our awareness of God. We've pointed this a couple of different times. We mentioned about Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. And they could not do it. And what was their punishment for defying that authority? Fiery furnace. Not because they did anything wrong, but because they would not obey Nebuchadnezzar. Same thing happened to Daniel just a couple of chapters later with King Darius. There's these satraps or these government officials that tried to find fault in, in Daniel. And they bring accusation, try to bring accusation against him. They sign a petition that says, we will not pray or we will not petition in any other name other than King Darius, and Daniel cannot do it. 
And when he is found to not bow the knee, what was the consequence? Lines to him. Because of his mindfulness of God, because of his awareness of God, the same thing happens to Peter and John in the book of Acts. Beaten, thrown in prison, commanded not to speak anymore in the name, but being mindful of the Lord. They cannot help but speak of that which they have seen and heard. Rest assured, suffering and unjust suffering will come only when in doing what is good. Scripture pointing us to the example, if you only do what is good and fitting, there will be suffering for it. This isn't giving you a pass because you do what's right and you do what's good. If you are mindful of God and you follow God, someday doing what is good will land you in earthly, worldly trouble. That was the example of Daniel. That was the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was the example of the Apostle Paul as well. It's the example of Peter. But Peter's main point that he's building towards is that was true for your Lord as well. And Christian, you should not expect anything less than that. And Peter introduces a theme for the first time in this verse, namely the idea of suffering unjustly. This is the first time that he's mentioned it in his letter. And from here, this will be a major theme for the entirety of the rest of his epistle that he's writing. I want you to write these scriptures down, and as you can see them, look them up later. But 1 Peter 2.20, 1 Peter 2.21, 1 Peter 2.23, 1 Peter 3.14, 1 Peter 3.17, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 Peter 4.1, he mentions it twice about suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 4.15, 1 Peter 4.19, and 1 Peter 5.10. Say them real quickly again. 1 Peter 2, verses 20, 21, and 23. 1 Peter 3, verses 14, 17, and 18. Twice in 1 Peter 4, 1, also in verses 15 and 19, and 1 Peter 5, 10. Peter's point is this, that you be mindful of God, and when you are tempted in the moment of your suffering, it will come. Christian, you need to know that the Lord is at work. And because of your mindfulness of God, you look to him instead of your circumstances. You look to see how God is at work in the midst of your unjust suffering. And God's aim is that you would continue to do good and only good and continue to follow him despite the difficulty and injustice that you see. You need to know what you see. You need to know what I see. You need to know... of the awareness of God that you have in the midst of suffering. And certainly in the midst of unjust suffering. But secondly, you need to know that God sees as well. Not only what you see, not only what I see, but God sees 
as well. Peter is continuing to build his argument. Essentially, what he does in verses 19 and 20 is he restates his point and further develops his point and his thought. Watch this. 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one, so it's not just about servants anymore. This is a principle that is at work here. For one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Christian, you need to be reminded that God sees the affliction of his people, and in time, God will act and bring about his justice in time. The tension is that we want to see it and fight on our own accord. We want to set things right. We want to be the one who brings about vindication and justice. Yet we are called to trust the Lord instead and endure in the face of threat, opposition, and suffering. It's interesting, if you flip over to the book of Exodus, chapter number 2, one of the things that you see in the book of Exodus chapter 2 and in Exodus chapter 3 is this theme of God seeing the oppression of his people at the hands of the Egyptians. In the midst of their bondage, God sees their affliction. Note the language in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those days, many days of the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He continues in Exodus chapter 3. Then the Lord says, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out to a land that is good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, in the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pizzites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. This is a theme that is echoed when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed by zealous men who would eventually stone him to death in Acts chapter 7. You want to see an example of unjust punishment. Look in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. And he quotes from Exodus chapter 3. And to know, Christian, that God is aware and sees the affliction of his people. God is not indifferent. God is concerned. God takes note of their suffering, and God intends it for a purpose. And Peter is pointing us for a purpose as well. God sees, and he is not indifferent. God has a purpose in what he is trying to accomplish, even in the midst of unjust suffering. 
at the hands of wicked and evil masters. And when you feel suffering unjustly, know that at least five things are true in this text. Number one is that it would bring about your mindfulness of God. God intends that when you suffer unjustly, you would have a mindfulness of the Lord. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endure sorrow when suffering unjustly. This isn't about the fear of man or being in weakness. This is it's not that those things are irrelevant. We bear it and we're conscious of the Lord. We take the Lord's work into account. We're mindful of God and God intends that your suffering would bring about an awareness of him. Secondly, God aims that you would receive credit or reward from him. We'll come back to this in just a moment, but real quickly, look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That out of consciousness towards God, Christians see and they look for strength and courage and hope and peace in the times of suffering. God sees it and tributes his grace in it and means it for your credit. God is pleased when this happens. Thirdly, we have been called to this end and to suffer through this end. I'm expanding out beyond verse 20 now. We've been called to this end of suffering. Look at verse 21a. For this you have been called. Christian, this isn't a coincidence. This is calling. To this you were called. This isn't just circumstance. This isn't just coincidence. This is your calling, Christian to suffering, and even to unjust suffering. 1 Peter 3, 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called to this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Obedience to suffering, and in this suffering, that's your vocation. Christian, you were called to this. Fourthly, it is a way in which you follow Jesus. Look at 21b. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his steps. Jesus intends, God intends, that when suffering and unjust suffering comes your way, that you would follow Christ and people could see that and say, that is what Jesus endured as well. And we join him in his suffering as well. But then fifthly, it is an opportunity for you to rest in the Lord. Look at verse 23. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When you endure unjust suffering with a mindfulness of God, you're not saying that justice doesn't matter. You're not indifferent towards suffering. You're not 
just get over it. That's not the posture of a Christian. And that's not God's posture either. God sees, God knows, God cares. And we should too. And God is concerned, but God is also the final judge. And God will be the one that ultimately settles accounts. And so we rest in him and know that God will have his say on the last day. So we're not indifferent towards justice, but we know that when injustice happens, our safest land is not in our hands or in the hands of men, but in trusting in the Lord. And it will be God who vindicates. It will be God who brings about justice. God who is aware of your situation, who is aware of your suffering, you can trust him, you can follow him in the same way that Christ did as well. To rest in God, to have confidence that justice comes from him, verses 21 through 24. That your submission isn't for their sake, but it's for the Lord, verses 13 and 18. And you can honor them, but you cannot ultimately bow the knee you can only bow the knee to God. You can respect authorities. You can respect those in authority over you. But you do not worship them. And to know that God sees in my affliction, God sees those who are in authority over me, but don't miss this. <laughs> they will never own you. Peter uses a word here for servant in verse 18. And it's not the word doulos that he used for slave in verse 17. He uses the word doulos in verse 17. And he says, you are what? You are slaves to Christ. You are bondservants to the Lord. It's almost like Peter is saying, you may serve them, but you'll never be enslaved to them. He may be the master over you, but you'll never be enslaved to them. Instead, you belong fully and finally to the person of Christ. You are his bondservant. You belong to no one else. You have been purchased and redeemed by Christ. You're nobody's slave. And I won't be humiliated, but I will willingly and willfully submit, and I will overcome your evil with good and with God. And I'll be unthreatened by your evil and hatred and your injustice against me so long as I'm mindful of God and He is with me. I'll live as He commands. I'll do only what is good despite the hardships. I will endure suffering because I know God is working even through this difficulty. He is working. He's not indifferent. He sees. He knows. I'll trust Him because I ultimately belong to Him. I am His bondservant, not anyone else's. I belong to the Lord. You not only need to see what you see, you not only need to see what that God sees, but you need to know that one day, brothers and sisters in Christ, you will see. Look at verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Interesting phrase that's used here. For what credit is it if... When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But when you do good, suffer for it. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Grace, grace, credit. What is he getting at? It's an interesting connection that Peter is making 
to this idea of credit and graciousness. The word there for graciousness is the word keros. It is, a, it is the Greek word for, for grace. It's the word keros that he's using. But note, there's not just grace, there's credit. Implied only for those who do good and suffer unjustly. Emphasizing again, doing good, do good, do good. I hope you hear Peter saying that over and over and over again. Verse 15, that you would do good. Live as servants, honor everyone, do what is good, verse 19. But if when you do good and suffer, you endure, this is a gracious thing. For, Peter is aiming at something here. He's aiming that this graciousness is a measure of God's presence with you in the midst of that. But I believe he's going beyond that, and he means what he says. He means credit. He means reward. He means favor. He means blessing. Flip over to the Gospel of Luke. It's going to come up on the screen. But Luke uses this same logic, and Jesus uses this same logic, by using this word keros in the way that it's used and, and can kind of be used in different contexts to, to mean something similar. And Peter is aiming at that as well. He means gracious thing. And I think what he means by that is that this is credit. This is credit. Watch what he says, what Luke says in Luke chapter 6. For if you love those who love you, what benefit is it that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom, who expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back from the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your, watch this, your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, is arguing the same way that Peter is arguing here. Jesus is arguing that if you just merely love those who love only your friends or love those who love you back, then you're really no different than non-believers. What distinguishes your love is that you love even your enemies and sinners. Peter means the same thing when he says, it's no credit if you do what's evil and you suffer for it, for that would be fitting for you. But if you do what is good, if you do what is right, there's a reward for that. Note the language again. I hope you're still in Luke. I want you to see this. This interplay between credit and grace. I'll try to call it out to you. It says, if you love those who love you, what benefit? Keros, what benefit? What grace is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit? There's keros. What benefit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit? It's, it's, it's keros. What credit is it to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and give back the same amount. But if you love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, your reward, different word, misthos, the wage, your reward for that will be great. For you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful 
and the evil. Do you see what Luke just did? He says it's benefit, it's benefit, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, and it's credit to your account. This is grace. This is the reward. The reward will be great. Peter is getting at that same idea that there is grace. It's a gracious thing. And there is credit that is given in the midst of your unjust suffering. It's grace. It's benefit. There's credit to your account. It is a gracious thing if you suffer because you've done good. It's benefiting you. When you suffer for only doing what is good, don't lose sight of that. It is working for something. Don't lose sight of your reward. There's grace in enduring suffering because of your relationship with the Lord. Know that you will receive a reward from the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says, So we don't lose heart. Therefore, our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you see these, these crowns that are mentioned throughout the Scriptures. You see the victor's crown in 1 Corinthians 9. It's imperishable wreath that Paul talks about. There's this crown of rejoicing that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Paul speaking of the brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this crown of righteousness that Paul talks about that is laid up for me, this crown of righteousness, 1 Timothy 4, 8, which the Lord, righteous, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, but not also to me, but also those who have loved his appearing. There's a crown of life that is mentioned in the book of James. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. It's a crown of life. There's a crown of glory that Peter will mention in 1 Peter chapter 5, that when the chief shepherd appears, you elders, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. There's reward, there's credit, there's, there's something we have to look forward to. But none more than the person of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul gets at in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. What's the prize? What is it that I'm looking for? It is the prize, the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. You flip over to the book of Hebrews and you see all of these patriarchs living by faith, by faith. They did all of these incredible things. And then it's interesting, the last part of the book of Hebrews chapter 12 starts turning to all these, what seems to be awful things that happened to these people who had faith. Others were mocked and flogged and even, even in chains of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in, in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains, dens and caves on the earth. All these things, though commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised. As God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, we should not be they, for apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Then what does he jump into? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. He is our prize. He is our treasure. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And the Apostle Paul, in countless beatings, often near death that he says, he was beaten with rods, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was danger in all types of different people and places, yet he continued to follow the Lord. And in the book of Acts, he says, the Holy Spirit is testifying to me that in every city, only affliction and imprisonment await me. There's suffering coming. But I do not count my life as any value or precious to myself, but only that I may finish my course and ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify of the gospel of the grace of the Lord. Christian, what do you do when unjust suffering happens on account of the Lord? How do you suffer well, even in the midst of unjust suffering while only doing good? How do you do that? And Peter says, you look to Jesus. Look what he says. The way that he builds, the way that he does. Be subject to the emperors. Only do good. Be subject to the governor. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear the Lord. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures suffering while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called. What is he pointing us to? Because Christ also suffered for you. Peter is pointing you to Christ. Peter is pointing you to your only hope in the midst of suffering. it's going to continue to get tough. And it's going to continue to get harder. And we're going to be tempted to say, well, what about the authority that's not good? What if it's bad? What if it's unjust? I want to defend. I want to justify. I want to make right. Peter says, you look to the example of your Savior. Christian, it is that you have been called to this end. Suffering is going to come, even if you do good, for it came upon Christ as well. And in that moment, and trying to see above the clouds that you can't see, know that God has an aim here. Know that God hasn't abandoned you. Know that He's not indifferent. Know that it is working for an eternal weight of glory that is to come. And know that one day you will see Him face to face. But for now, you continue to follow Him. You continue to join Him in suffering. For it is to this end that you have been called. And even in that, Christian, God aims that it would be your union with Christ. Suffering is all throughout the book of Peter. It is like bookends. He starts his epistle in that way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. You remember he says this, that the, the genuineness of your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, may be more precious than gold, may be found in the result of praise and glory at the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what's one of the last things that he says in 1 Peter chapter 5? Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. 
there's a weight to it, Christian. There is an eternal weight to this glory the Apostle Paul calls us to. The eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And what a gracious thing on that day. What credit it will be. And we will finally see our great reward face to face. And we say in all the suffering, you were calling me to follow you to that end. And when I was tempted to think that this was absolutely meaningless, you were conforming me to the image of your Son. You were, you were calling me to follow you in suffering. And the evil against me was, in fact, a gracious thing. It was uniting me to my Savior. All of it was working for an eternal weight of glory, and it was union, but now it gives way to a better union, and my reward is Christ. You need to know what you see, Christian. You need to know what you see right in front of you and you need to be mindful of God. You need to know that God sees you and you need to know that one day you will see that God has been working even through suffering to conform you to the image of His Son. Look to Christ, Christian. How do you suffer well? How do you endure unjust suffering? Peter aims that you would look only to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray. Well, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. If you would like more information about Grace Point Church, go to gracepointhenderson.com or search us on Facebook by searching Grace Point Church Henderson. And if you live in the Henderson, Kentucky area, we always invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10:15 a.m. For all of our listeners, be sure to click the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast.